This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News. We welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. I'm Bill Bryant. Later, we will hear from Vince Gabbard at Keeneland about a major expansion coming to Southern Kentucky. Uh, an exciting announcement, but they're also dealing with a legal ruling that uh, we'll also talk about. First, the pandemic has led to major changes in the college experience since the spring and lots of caution as the fall semester approached. Now that colleges are back in session, some students are on campus facing new kinds of challenges and many are learning online. Dr. Aaron Thompson is the president of the Council on Post-Secondary Education, which is charged with the task of holding high standards for higher learning here in the Commonwealth. And he's joining us to give us an update. And uh, Dr. Thompson, we really appreciate you joining us. Good to be with you, Bill. Well, for the most part, so far, as we observe things anyway, so good, you know, as higher education has been able to keep going at least this deep into the semester. Are you encouraged by what you're seeing and the reports you're getting from campuses? You know, I really am. Uh, you know, when we went through the summer planning every week uh, to be fully open in the fall, and what I mean by fully open, it doesn't mean that we're doing fully face-to-face. -face. We have a system set up for part hybrid blending learning, uh, pure online learning, and then some face-to-face. -face. And we really prepared for it in every which way we know how to make sure that students stayed safe within our walls, if you will. They are young adults, so they do go out. Uh, but also making sure that we continue with the academic experience that gets them the credential or degree they need to be successful in this economy. I'm very, I'm very pleased with how well our campuses, our presidents, provosts, and other student support folk have really worked to make sure that this is happening. Do you feel, Dr. Thompson, that, uh, that students uh, can keep the learning momentum that, that they had in their college careers going in a, in a very challenging time like this? You know, I, yes, is the quick answer to that with a lot of caveats, Bill. What we know is that many of our students are still first generation. Many of our students are coming uh, from a place where higher education is still very much a goal of theirs, but maybe not have the kind of experience that warranted uh, them knowing how to really maneuver that. In this challenging time, the kind of student support and academic supports that they need we have to be innovative to get it to them. So it is hard because learning is more than just what you're conducting in the classroom. It's all of those things that happen outside the classroom, which equals at least, or maybe even uh, exceeds the need uh, for learning to take place. And that's what's hard, uh, is to making sure that they stay engaged and stay engaged safely, obviously, at, at the level they need to, to continue all of their learning. Because college is more than just the classroom experience. It's really getting ready for life. Well, in such a formative time, and, uh, and uh, that is why so many of them want to be on campus, is to, uh, to make new friends and uh, have new experiences. And that has been the challenge that has been so tough uh, with uh, COVID-19, with the, the distancing and, and all of that uh, going on. So you're saying, uh, from the indications you get, uh, students are overcoming the, uh, the hurdles somewhat. 
Oh, they are. I'm, I have a student advisory group that I put around me to just get the yeah. words from the horse's mouth, if you will. And that's what they're telling me. They're, they are telling me that faculty are engaging them. They are getting the needs met in many levels, but they're also telling me it's a struggle at times. Uh, we, we know that mental health is an issue that was happening before COVID. And it's a bigger issue now. How are we providing the telehealth that they need in that area? So they are saying there's struggles there. The biggest struggles I'm hearing is truly not being able to fully have the experience of that co-curricular uh, piece. In other words, you know, they do want to gather. They do want to make new friends. They do want to, you know, in many cases, not all students are traditional students. We have adult learners too, but for the traditional students, they're ready to get out and explore items that weren't in their uh, home place, if you will. So that's the struggle we're hearing from students is that they are really feeling hindered from having the kind of gatherings that they really would like to have. And yet the, the virus has dictated many things. We know that UK has had its challenges, more than 2,000 uh, cases uh, of uh, COVID on campus. We know UPIKE, which is private, had to put uh, uh, students on lockdown who were on campus. So uh, it, it has been difficult in that you take those steps forward and then have to take a, a step back on occasion. Absolutely, and there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle. UK is testing a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So we're capturing those students and we're putting them in quarantine. Uh, we're actually helping to control as much as we can. However, when you bring these many students back to a city the size of Lexington, it has an impact, both positive and negative. As a great big economic impact, UK is a big business, you know, and, but it also has the impact as far as the amount of cases, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But I'm very proud that UK and what the folk are doing there to control uh, the spread is absolutely great. I, I believe that UPIKE and other schools I mean, what you have here, Bill, once again, are a lot of young people that are coming in from the outside, and then once they get in, they go back outside. So it is hard. We don't have the kind of walls to contain that that uh, maybe P12 does. Yeah. But uh, yes, it, it is it is a place, but we're not even close to what's going on in places like Michigan, North Carolina, and other uh, places. So. I think the governor's guidance, I think the guidance we're getting from CDC, Dr. Stack here in the state, has really helped us to do the items that we need to do to keep students safe, but yet continue the academic endeavor. Yeah. You know, we understand that uh, some of our institutions were pleasantly surprised that enrollment uh, actually was uh, stronger than what they had feared uh, in this uh, pandemic situation. Uh, do you agree with that uh, at uh, most of our institutions? Oh, I'm. I'm ecstatic <laughs> considering because we were planning on a much larger fall. Uh, I mean, a much larger drop in enrollment. Uh, and what has happened is our public institutions were only down less than a percent. Uh, if you consider our independent colleges, they're up three and a half percent. Where we are seeing a downward uh, trend is with our community and technical colleges. But please remember these students more often than not are low income students, students that are coming into college for the first time. And this is somewhat concerning, we have to look at. But we also know if you look at the trend analysis, there tends to be when there's an economic downturn, 
with whatever the causes that happen to make it happen. Uh, we'll see about six months from now an upward trend mm -hmm. in that enrollment. But, you know, we are very happy, if you will, uh, of these numbers. And we still don't have all of our dual credit numbers in yet. So uh, enrollment should actually go up a little more. How much of this is uh, with us for good uh, in terms of the, the pivot to online learning, uh, the recognition that it works fine in some classes and is uh, very convenient to, for some students? Uh, as you said, uh, some of the student uh, life activities are certainly missing from that. But do you anticipate uh, online learning becoming a larger part of the landscape going forward? Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, we're not even having that conversation anymore. We're, we're trying to create more innovation currently with with the knowledge that the future is this in many ways you, know, you have to remember that once again let's go back to the original conversation we were having a few minutes ago that you know it doesn't mean that we don't have residential campuses we probably they will probably expand because students come in these settings to build another home to build another community but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll have to take those classes on, I mean, face-to-face. Uh, -face. They can do it in a variety of ways. And what we need to do now is to look at making sure that the quality is there for both the blended hybrid learning as well as for the online learning and face-to-face. -face. That doesn't mean that we're going to forget that. So, no, it is with us. Now, the interesting piece is how then do we foster a way for students to get the support they need? Uh, in this environment. We're going to have to be innovative in creating a process that isn't face-to-face, -face, that allows students to really grow, uh, uh, you know, socially, emotionally, uh, culturally, as well as academically. Dr. Thompson, your own story, very uh, inspiring to many. Uh, you have uh, told us uh, you uh, grew up poor in eastern Kentucky and uh, made your way to college, and it made a huge difference in your life. In this uh, time of renewed awareness about uh, social justice and equality issues uh, in America, what kind of role is Kentucky higher education uh, playing in giving students some perspective and, uh, you know, as well as to the service regions? You know, I appreciate you asking this, Bill, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that during this time uh, of unrest, you know, I do reflect on my life growing up in a segregated community, growing up in a place where we were uh, fighting for civil rights and human rights and justice every day, that we have to remember that we have to continue to come together, all of us, no matter where we're coming from, Democrats, Republicans, black, whites, and understand that if we don't have justice across all these institutions, criminal justice, educational justice, all of those we are leaving ourselves behind as a human race so the idea it's not about by the way i believe in uh, police reform but i believe in police i believe in us actually getting to a place where we can have civil conversations that's nonviolent. but i also know that we still have what i consider to be an equitable institutional processes in place and education is a place we have to start because that's the direct correlation you know being an Ill coming from clay county kentucky and the son of an illiterate coal miner and now the head of higher education i know the value of education and how it changes the trajectory of a human life 
So we're not going to get any place by focusing on one piece of reform. We're going to holistically have to work to do all reform. And well, education yeah. is a place to start. Higher education is that closest item that we have to making sure that people have the kind of life that changes for themselves as well as their children. So we have to be on the forefront of doing what we need to do to create justice. Uh, and in the case we're talking about, equitable education that's high quality that can be recognized by those that are going to hire our students. So we are here and want to be here. Let's have a few seconds left, and we'll try to have you back before the legislative session. But uh, as you know, the legislature only passed that one-year budget uh, last year, and uh, so they'll be back in 2021. Do you have concerns about funding for higher ed going forward? Well, you know, we've been asked, asked to take an 8% scenario budget cut uh, to be ready for a cut that could come up this fall or this coming spring. Yep. We are worried. I mean, the pandemic cost us about $144 million the last fiscal year. I'm not sure what it's going to cost us this year. And higher education, once again, you know, we've been trying to keep it affordable, had the lowest tuition increase uh, in almost three decades at a 0.7. But we are uh, in a place whereby we have to have funding to keep us going at the level to provide this state with the economy that it's going to have to have. The workforce is that direct correlation to that. So how we think about funding and how we're thinking about cuts, I would ask the legislature, the governor's office, and those uh, in the public even to support the idea that higher education is that direct uh, pipeline. Yes, I am concerned. I, I don't know how we keep taking more cuts. Dr. Aaron Thompson is the president of the Council on Post-Secondary Education. Thank you for taking a few minutes to speak with us. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Bill. I hope you have a great day. You as well. And we hope you'll stay here on Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll come back. We'll talk about Keeneland, their plans in southeastern Kentucky, and for the fall meet in Lexington. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers from WKYT. It's quite the understatement to say that horses are big here in Kentucky. It's safe to say that we've missed out on live racing this year because of the pandemic. But in southern Kentucky, there's never been an opportunity to see races live in a normal season. That's expected to change soon. Keeneland and Kentucky Downs are teaming up to open up a new track in Corbin along with another facility in Williamsburg. It's all awaiting approval from regulators right now and we're joined today by Vince Gabbard with Keeneland, and we'll talk about what led up to uh, this announcement that was made this week. Thank you, Vince, for being with us. Thanks, Bill, for having me. And before we get to that, uh, there has come since your announcement, a ruling from the, uh, the state uh, Supreme Court on paramutual wagering that seems to bring into some questions, uh, uh, into question, some of the things that you're doing now and uh, in going forward. Does this impact your plans? Uh, it, it, it does, at least temporarily. Uh, the decision that came out from the Supreme Court this week was, was quite a surprise, honestly, uh, from what we expected. Uh, luckily, the, the machines in question and, and the, the way that the, the case was framed um, is a little bit more narrow. Uh, so the, the machines that, that were part of that controversy uh, are only at a few of the racetracks across, state, across the state. But it's definitely something that impacts us. Uh, you know, historical racing has been a tremendous economic boost, uh, creating a, a tremendous amount of jobs, a lot of money for the general fund uh, for the state, not to mention what it's done to purses and, and what it's created from a racing circuit standpoint. 
Uh, you know, you've got in the last five years over $750 million of investment from the racetracks alone uh, in these new facilities. And, and it would impact our plans in, in Southeast Kentucky. Our, our hope is that uh, we get the, the language that we need from a statutory change to, to shore up everything that was mentioned in that, in that opinion from the Supreme Court. Uh, but we're so excited about what this means for Southeast Kentucky and moving forward down there. Given the uh, where you are with the, the court ruling, you'll be asking then the state legislature to, to clarify things and, to, and clear this up and let you move forward uh, cleanly. Yeah, we absolutely will. We, we, we've been very fortunate to be good partners with the legislature on a number of issues, um, you know, really for decades. And, and this is no different. I think that they understand the importance uh, of the horse industry. And, and this is no different than uh, you know, from a from an undermining standpoint, what's happened to coal in the recent years? Uh, it, you know, what what could happen to the auto industry, the manufacturing businesses here in the state? So it's no different from an impact and an overall impact to the entire state. Let's talk about what you have planned in uh, southeastern Kentucky. Uh, the proposed facilities there. Uh, you've been uh, some years in getting to this point, uh, but what do you want to see happen? Well, it has been several years and we've been so fortunate. The, the folks in, in Corbin Williamsburg have been great to work with and very patient uh, as we work through these plans and try to figure out what was next. Uh, but essentially we'll have a, a standard bread facility that will feed in uh, to the Red Mile meet uh, in the summer that we plan there in Corbin just off the bypass and then related uh, facilities with uh, historical racing machines, but restaurant and entertainment uh, and those sorts of things that have been you there uh, right off the exit near the water park at Williamsburg. So in our goal and, and to try to, you know, continue this amount of investment that we have across the state, but also be great community partners. We want to, the, the historical racing has given us that opportunity uh, for the racing business. And we think it's time to, to extend that hospitality and that benefit to Southeast Kentucky. What do you see there in terms of opportunity? Does that open you up to uh, you know, the Knoxville market and even places uh, farther south? It, it does, um, actually. You know, the, the biggest draw would be from that Knoxville market. As we've seen with the facilities in West Kentucky, about 70 to 75% of their customer base is coming from Tennessee. Uh, and so we feel like this is an opportunity to bring some of that Tennessee dollars and, and put them in Kentucky uh, and create you know, through that corridor. I mean, you've got such rich history uh, in Williamsburg and Corbin and, and what it means for uh, for the local people down there. And we, we want to find a way to, to draw some of the out-of-state money, uh, you know, even as far as Chattanooga, uh, for people to be able to come up. It's an easy drive up I-75 and spend some of their discretionary money in Kentucky. Who is your market uh, when you try to identify who will come to these uh, facilities that are proposed? Yeah, you know, it's really everybody, Bill. I, you know, the, as we've seen with some of these other facilities, they, they kind of appeal to everyone, whether it's the, the live racing uh, or the, the simulcasting or the machines themselves um, or the restaurants. I mean, there's there's plenty of people that are coming to these facilities for the food. Uh, you know, we, we have plans for hotels on, on the sites as well. Uh, we, you know, it's it's truly entertainment destinations, and we want to we want to provide that entertainment and, and get people here. And you're talking about jobs for the state and uh, certainly for that region, right? Yeah, absolutely. Between the two facilities, we're looking at close to 200 jobs um, at, at all levels, hospitality, culinary. Uh, you know, we want to tie in and be good partners with uh, the University of the Cumberlands, uh, with the technical schools down there. There's uh, a number of technology jobs that are tied with these as well because of the amount of technology that goes into these facilities. So, you know, it, 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 we feel like it would be a huge positive impact for the region. All right, and uh, can you give us a time frame uh, down there? 
Yeah, so the goal, we've already, we've already made the application. So that's one hurdle that we've, that we've overcome that we've never done before. We've actually made the application. Uh, by statute, the Racing Commission has to award dates uh, by November 1st, which is typical time frame. So, you know, assuming that, that we get the license from the Racing Commission, then we would be uh, continue with our engineering and planning phases and hopefully uh, ready to start breaking ground uh, in the spring. Vince, what a year this has been, uh, certainly, and uh, so anybody trying to move ahead with anything it has uh, challenges, but uh, for Keeneland, there are no fans at the spring meet, and now here we're coming upon the fall meet, and it'll be the, the same thing. I know you miss your fans as uh, they miss horse racing, uh, but still, you do plan a, a nice event, right? We do, and uh, you know, it's when we ran in July. I think you know, as much as as much as you get exhausted and tired from a day uh, of racing in July, not having any fans here, I, I, I underestimate how much energy I get individually from having people here and, and putting on a great show. And it's it's tough. It's tough on everybody, but but we're going to do everything we can to to bring Keeneland to people. We've got Keeneland at home packages and uh, through our gift shop and and things on social media, watch parties. Uh, and of course, you can always watch and wager on the races uh, from your phone or at home. And, and, and we want to encourage people to do that. That engagement is such an important part of what we offer. Uh, and regardless of where people are, we want to continue to engage our fans. And the Breeders' Cup uh, will, will be the same way in that uh, it is a major world-class event that will be right here in Lexington. And yet, uh, no fans allowed this time. Although you tell us there still will be, uh, what, a couple of thousand people involved? Yeah, so with you know with the horsemen, the owners, and the, the central personnel, we'll have a couple thousand here. But a lot of people we've heard from a lot of owners that uh, people that are affiliated with the event that may not have a horse in, but they're still coming to town. They want to they want to come and experience Central Kentucky and what it has to offer that time of year. And it is the World Championship. The Breeders' Cup's the two biggest days of racing uh, that our sport has, and we're blessed to we're blessed to be able to host it again. Uh, be a far cry from the the ninety five thousand that we had in twenty fifteen over the two days. Uh, five years ago, uh, and, and we're fortunate to be able to host again in 2022 so that we can continue uh, to be able to partner with the community and, and inject that uh, economic development into the area. As you've experimented with ways to uh, use your venue, uh, and of course we know there's the Keeneland Entertainment Center that always has events through the years, uh, but also uh, there was to have been the second annual Railbird Music Festival. That didn't happen. Uh, I know that was a disappointment and I'm sure you're uh, already planning for next year. Uh, we are, and you know, the, the, we had a, such a great lineup um, for this year, and, and building off the success with a few small tweaks here and there on the things that we were we were planning uh, for this time. But uh, a number of the of the acts have held intact, so we've, we've kind of extended that to next year to be able to provide a same or similar lineup to what we were proposing, and uh, and we're really excited about bringing it back next August. You feel good about horse racing right now, uh, given all that's happening in the world. You know, I do, Bill. It's, um, you know, we're coming out of our September sale. Today's the last day of a two-week sale. Uh, the market is held together um, substantially well, given given everything that we've, we've gone through. Uh, from a wagering standpoint and from a product standpoint, we've probably gotten better. Uh, horse racing is one of the few things that were going on uh, really from the shutdown on. And luckily, we've, made, we've seemed to maintain a lot of that market share uh, for people that are watching and wagering on races and what it means. Uh, our entries are looking strong for October. We've got a great stakes lineup for next weekend for October. Uh, but but the, that sales market is really the barometer. Um, and even in these times, as much uncertainty as there is, the fact that we've been able to hold that market as, as strong as we have 
is a great indicator for our future. Vince Gabbard from Keeneland, thank you so much uh, for giving us uh, some time and updating us on uh, some big plans for the park uh, no, in, thank, the, in the track. Sure. Appreciate you very much. Yes, sir. Stay with us here on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers, and we'll hear from Greta Van Susteren in just a moment. Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Of course, uh, the Supreme Court vacancy is in the news right now as we're in the middle of campaign 2020, and Greta Van Susteren has a look. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. I'm sure you've heard of the expression, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Well, that's what Democrats are thinking as they talk up court packing. If Vice President Biden wins the White House, some Democratic senators are threatening to expand the Supreme Court, adding more justices to the current nine until they have a majority of appointments. Changing the political makeup of the court would no doubt influence decisions which impacts the nation. The Constitution says nothing about how many justices must be on the court, and that number has fluctuated over history. At one time, way back in time, there were 10 justices on the court, but in 1869, Congress passed a law saying the number should be nine. In the 1930s, President Roosevelt tried to get Congress to expand the court, but that went over like a lead balloon, and the number remains at nine. This election season, during the primaries, 11 Democrats running said they would consider court packing. Vice President Biden was not one of them. If Democrats do take the Senate and pass new legislation expanding the court, would a President Biden change his mind and sign that into law? Your guess is as good as mine. But here's what we do know. President Trump is narrowing his choice to replace liberal, very liberal Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a conservative, most anticipate very conservative justice, and likewise a woman. Presidents want to choose someone leaning their way politically and young enough so the justice will have decades of impact on the Supreme Court since Supreme Court justices have lifetime appointments. This Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern, President Trump will name his nominee, and Sunday, Full Court Press will cover the story from every angle, bringing politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. Obviously, we have that uh, update as we're airing this program now, and so you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren. It's coming up this morning at 11.30 on WKYT. Well, that's Kentucky Newsmakers. We want to thank you for joining us, and I'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning. We start bright and early at 4.30, also on WKYT Mid-Morning at 10 and WKYT News at Noon. You make it a good week ahead.